and the top stories. Officials report 27 persons injured with no fatalities in the belly landing of a Continental Airlines 727 shortly after takeoff from Denver on a flight to Wichita, Kansas. President Ford cautions another Middle East war possibly might bring about a confrontation between the United States and Russia. Police and fire pension systems bring success to Big Mac bond issue in New York. The Department of HEW reports unemployment increased the number of families on welfare in April. And that's the 9 o'clock edition of the news. This is John Scott reporting. Next news as it happens, next scheduled news tonight at 11 o'clock over WOR Radio 710, the talk of New York. Now stay tuned for Gene Shepard, next on WOR New York. you wear a, uh, a coonskin cap to do your show. <laughs> Incidentally, speaking of the of the uh, the bicentennial and the coonskin cap and all the rest of it, uh, there's one, you know, radio stations are, are maniacal about, and TV, they're even worse, they're maniacal about promoting whatever's going on as their own thing. So there's at least seven stations in town that call themselves the bicentennial station. Now, uh, <laughs> you know, oh yes, there's a bicentennial uh, unpainted furniture store over in Jersey, and it's the official one. I mean, if if you want to get an official bicentennial chest of drawers unpainted, you have to go there, and uh, you know it's all part of the part of the uh, the promotional world. In fact, uh, there's a television station that I saw in Washington. Uh, I happened to be in Washington the other day. They don't call themselves the bicentennial station or the bicentennial. Uh, channel. They go even further than that. They say that they're the tricentennial station. Now, <laughs> well, you know why this is so. I mean, because 
After all, the bicentennial is already hackneyed. So uh, uh, you might as well leap on the next celebration before it arrives. You know, a good hundred years after all, that channel's going to be there. Their rating is going to be swinging a hundred years from now. Incidentally, have you ever thought? Have you ever thought about you know the whole the whole idea of uh, of a media? Uh, let's take uh, let's take all the media: the films, uh, television, radio, records. Uh, eight-track tape, <laughs> all those great media. All right, you have all these things here. That's called the media, right? Well, this is an extremely new thing. You know, the media, uh, actually the technical thing that we call media, I mean, electronic media, even optic media, which is, of course, a film, uh, does not date back much before 1890. Do you agree with that? That's that's unbelievably a short time when you stop to think of a vast span of history. Well, all right, so uh, we're, we're in the beginning of it. A lot of people say, oh, what do you mean, the beginning? This is fantastic. It's the flowering of it. Get out. That's, believe me, guys that were flying around in, uh, <laughs> in Stinson, uh, Stinson two-place biplanes thought they were at the very apogee of the age of flight. They, they could not have conceived of the Concorde. No way. Uh, and so I would suggest to you that uh, we are we are all pioneers. I don't care how hip you think you are. You know, sitting there with your $149 A-track stereo quadraphonic ding dong out there. That stuff is primitive. Do you agree? <laughs> I mean, it's inevitable that. Well, now what I'm I'm talking about in the vast span of history. Can you imagine the day when uh, when a, a, a television station or radio station is celebrating its 1500th anniversary. 1500 years ago, founded on this site, WOR. <laughs> and and, and, and the, all the stuff, of course, that, uh, that we are doing now will be so long forgotten that it will be completely, uh, you know, it have nothing. Uh, in fact, it won't even be records remain after all those years. As a matter of fact, you think that. Do you think that there are many actual records that remain of uh, television and radio shows that were done, let's say, in 1955? Are you of the impression that many of them remain? Well, that's comparatively recent. Very few compared to the vast number of shows. A few things here and there. But it's amazing how uh, perishable all this stuff is. Magazines. All right, let's take magazines. You know, everybody says, well, that's print. You know, it'll last. But actually, uh, magazines, even of popular magazines, are rare. If you were, if, if you wanted to go out, let's say, and, and look up a copy, buy a copy of, let's say, for argument's sake, a 1937 Life magazine. Now, what was more of a, of a big, vast, uh, popular magazine than Life? I mean, there were thousands, millions of them printed every week. It was a weekly on top of it. Millions of them, and yet uh, they're wor they're rare. <laughs> so, so uh, the the point I'm making here is that is that nothing is as perishable as the as the perishable. And the one thing about pop society, yeah, you hear that hum? Is there a hum there? I'm getting a hum here. Hello, oh, there it goes. One thing that's just my head. It's okay. 
I have a I have a bad uh, FET circuit in my ear or something. But uh, oh yes, the bionic man is eventually going to happen. But uh, oh yeah, it's terrible. Uh, can you see uh, 250 years from now a guy going in to get a home corrected? That uh, <laughs> he has to have this new filter installed. <laughs> so, well, it, your 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 main filter choke is uh, going out. It's leaking. Well, uh, that's you know be a very serious operation at that time. However, uh, the day uh, the day is going to come, and it's hard for us to conceive it. You know, it is one of the most difficult things I think of anybody to ever conceive. I don't care even if a guy sits down and, and tries to do it. You know, like the the you know the poor sad guys like uh, the science fiction writers are always writing this jazz, and it rarely ever comes out anything remotely like what the reality is. As a matter of fact, did you know that I, I recently ran across a fascinating, uh, uh, a, I suppose you could call it a, a uh, compendium, it's for want of a better word. But uh, it was done in the mid-1920s, a compendium of, of great science fiction writers of the day. You know, they're, they're always considered such great uh, seers. <laughs> and uh, just like, you know, this is one of the great myths. It's like everybody always considers the best. How many times have you heard this phrase? You know, the best writing in any newspaper is on a sport page. Well, the guy that says that probably only reads the sport page. So uh, that's the only writing he can understand are scores, big ones, you know, written out so they can understand them. However, uh, a, a, a canard of that type is, uh, you know, I'll tell you, the science fiction writers really are, you know, it's amazing how they really do predict the future. Well, <laughs> anyway, I was looking at this compendium, and it was, it was really, it was almost a, it was almost hard to believe that these guys in the mid-twenties were predicting what life would be like in the sixties, in 1960, which seemed to them, of course, in 1925, to be unbelievably far in the future. Well, among other things, they were universal on one thing. By 1960, poverty would have been eliminated. <laughs> yeah, they, they were universal on one thing. Now, why was it going to be eliminated? Well, because they're going to have all these fantastic machines. And uh, the machines will, will produce such a vast amount of goods at so, such a tremendously cheap price. And, uh, and that there's no, there would be no point in, uh, in uh, there would be no such thing as poverty. That, uh, that uh, poverty really means that you can't afford <laughs> the, the amenities of life. Well, by 1960, the amenities of life were going to be so tremendously cheap because of advancing technology that that in itself would eliminate poverty. Well, let's face it, if, if gasoline is two cents a gallon, it would take... Uh, we, there's no way you could be poor. <laughs> if you had a nickel, <laughs> you could fill up anything. Right? And so, now, you see that principle. Okay, they were agreed on that. Now, you want to hear some of the other things they were agreed on? Well, due to the fact that technology was going to do these vast and fantastic things for mankind, there would no longer be any need for war. Due to the fact that most wars, they thought, were economic. It's one country fighting against the other country because they have not nations and so on. So by 1960, there would be no war at all. How about those two beautiful prognostications? And, uh, <laughs> okay, they were also agreed on another thing, too. That by by 1960, and I think you'll find this uh, uh, somewhat interesting, it would be common for man to live to 150 years old. 
due to, again, advancing technology. And <laughs> in other words, the belief that technology is almost total among most science fiction types. And so they, they believe it can do anything. And uh, they also said that, that in advancing technology would, would create a new kind of man. There would be technical ways to treat, for example, mental illnesses. Violence would not any longer be a part of man because machines would be developed to expunge this from the head. <laughs> you know, uh, like a nuttiness eraser. You just put it on your head, turn it on, and all the nuttiness goes away you know, magically. And so, uh, anyway, these guys had these great ideas, see, and, and among other things, they, they predicted, oh, you want to hear some of the other trivialities? They, well, they predicted, first of all, that uh, all stores, this is, this is one of the most, uh, talk about clouded crystal balls, all stores, and this was almost a universal belief in the mid-20s among the professional seers of the period, by the way, these were all the high-paid science fiction writers of the period, that there would be no such thing as a store any longer. You know why? Well, because technically it would now it would be possible at this point. They're going to have these unbelievable technicalities in, in every home that you just walk over to the wall of your home and if you you, you press four or five different buttons, you know, and then the on comes uh, let's say a a, a a screen flashes on the on your your wall and tells you the the, the number of screwdrivers that no no the number of screwdrivers, nobody comes in here, tell them. <laughs> the number of screwdrivers uh, that are in the, uh, in the uh, hardware department at Macy's. Let's say you want a number two screwdriver, uh, a Phillips type. At which point, then, you just move a little pointer up there and you go, ah, you press it like that, and it is almost instantaneously delivered to you because you have actuated a whole set of machinery electrically at Macy's. This thing comes to an underground chute. And it flies right out of your wall. There you got it. Just instantly, see? And it's credited to your universal account. See, that's how you pay it. See, that, that's all coded. That was going to be by 1960. So there wouldn't be any need for stores. There is no such thing as a, as a store. There's this vast supplier. And because things are so cheap, there'd be no competition any longer. <laughs> oh, wow. This is a WOR in New York. Now, you ready for some of the other predictions that they said by 1960? Okay. They said that by 1960, that, uh, they, that uh, no longer, of course, would movies be the way they were. Of course, this was 1925, and movies featured such uh, svelte stars as Theda Barra. And uh, this was in the period when, uh, when, uh, when, well, say, Laurel and Hardy hadn't even restarted. <laughs> you know, W.C. Fields was still trying to play pool in Philadelphia. So uh, here, here was the, you know, the, they predicted that the movie, by 1960, would no longer be uh, a, a thing you went to uh, and sat and watched. It would be three-dimensional, totally, I mean, completely, not with any fancy glasses, anything like that. And it would be, it would be a room in your house. You, you'd go in and you'd, you'd uh, hit the proper buttons and switches, and each wall would have a different program which you could select. Say, for example, I think, how about it, gang? How about seeing Towering Inferno tonight? And at that point, you would, your family would all settle down. It was a special room, you see, and you'd hit these switches, and the entire wall would be three-dimensional, and you're not watching the film. This is something you must understand. You are part of it. 
So as the inferno builds, you get this heat. See, it's this all, it'll be total sensuality. The heat comes out, and you hear it, and people are screaming all around you. And you're in the middle of the lobby as the great chandelier falls. And, ah, you know, and it says, uh, <laughs> now, uh, okay, that was by 1960. Now, you want to hear another thing. This is, a, this is a common belief among almost all science fiction writers that there would be no such thing as the automobile. They always believe this. This, is all, this has been persistent. See, every man would be transported by his own electronically operated and radar control, or they didn't say radar, they said electronically guided is what they said. They didn't, radar hadn't come up yet. Electronically guided helicopter. There's something about the helicopter that has always gotten the, 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 you might say, the man on the street prognosticator. He always believes one day everybody's going to, you know, just go up in the air with this little machine and it will electronically take him out to the park. And <laughs> it'll go down. And uh, you've seen this, have you? And they even had an illustration that showed a 1960 highway. Well, what, what it was, was a two... Uh, converging electronic beams, you know, they shaded in where the beams were, and there were thousands of helicopters, and they were hovering because one beam, one group was, it was like a, you were at an intersection, see, of the airwaves, and uh, there was even six or seven helicopter, uh, electronically controlled police helicopters, you know, that, that were observing the whole scene and controlling the lights, uh, you know, controlling the electronic, all oh, just fantastic. Another thing, too, for the people who, uh, uh, even by 1960, it would be hard for a man of 1925 to believe that this bad thing would happen, but there were people who might conceive would be afraid of heights. So the country was crisscrossed by these almost instantaneous, and this is another thing that is dear to the heart of prognosticators, a thing called the monorail keeps being referred to endlessly. <laughs> this goes all the way back to the Greeks, see, that one day there's going to be this thing, and it's going to crisscross the nation, and it's going to be practically instantaneously. It'll do this. You get into this sealed capsule, boom, and it goes whistling across the countryside, and, of course, it's in tremendous luxury. They have pictures of it. Uh, everybody is uh, elegantly dressed, curiously enough, wearing 1925 hairstyles. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, incidentally, they had not uh, anticipated graffiti. Uh, there was no graffiti anywhere, but uh, they were whistling along, and you could see this beautiful rolling countryside down below them, and uh, they were on their way to San Francisco, and they had taken off from Boston. I don't know why they picked Boston. But it was Boston to San Francisco, and it said underneath it, four and a half hours uh, of, a, of a luxurious, soundless ride. And this was the consensus of the prognosticators. Well... Uh, this was not just one sorehead. There was not one guy in all these experts. And by the way, this was a major book compiled by a major publisher. It wasn't a little cockamamie uh, pulp thing. It was, a, it was one of the major publishers uh, that had compiled this, What Is It Going to Be Like? It was 1925, so it was the quarter century mark. And the word modernism was very big in 1925. This was the beginning of modern architecture and the glass buildings and all. And... Uh, and the, the word modernism was very exciting to people. And so in 1925, to commemorate the quarter century of the 20th century, uh, they, they brought together all the great thinkers. Now, these weren't just hack writers. These were guys like the heads of the MIT Technological Department, you know, the great prognosticators, the, uh, the head of, uh, of the uh, Westinghouse Electronic Development uh, 
set up, and all these big guys were brought together, and this is what they predicted. <laughs> Gee, it was a great world. And uh, uh, not one guy even mentioned garbage, which by 1975 is a major problem of mankind. But apparently they didn't have this. Well, the way they had it figured out, one guy did mention in passing a thing which he called waste disposal. Now, waste disposal would be done instantaneously and would be done electronically. In short, you, you take an eggshell and you drop in this machine, it goes, bing, it's ionized. It doesn't even make a gas, it makes ions. <laughs> so there's no problem at all. And, the, and the, whole, the whole city was that way. So this land, which we now, and he made mention of the fact, which was now used for incinerators and all that, could be reclaimed for beautiful parks where uh, people would endlessly stroll and compose poems because technology, of course, by that time would have done away with work. And they can all walk around and learn to play the guitar, which man apparently has always wanted to do. Would you please hit the money button? <laughs> Right here it says special copy for shepherds sing over the kid. I ain't got no berry. I say I ain't got no berry. I ain't got no berry blues here. Now's the time to beat the berry blues with berry's best chocolate chip, sugar, and sugar fudge cookies. Look for these great cookies on sale this week at all Dan supermarkets for only seventy nine cents. Yes, they make them the way cookies were made long ago when nobody skimped on ingredients. Burry is standing in there shoveling the real stuff into the big vats. The dark, rich, chocolatey kind of cocoa. Oh, wow. The fattening type. Look for these great cookies on sale this week at all Dan supermarkets. You'll get the best and still pay less. Bye-bye. I got the Burberry blue. Silly. Uh, almost everybody loves elephants, according to this copy here. And the only time, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to criticize anybody's hang-up, but if you ever get an elephant hang-up, you got problems, buddy. I mean, I can see you in this big scene getting trampled on. But the only time we get to see them is in the circus or in a zoo, which is kind of sad if you have an elephant uh, fetish. Uh, but there's a new book called Among the Elephants. And it's a good book, apparently, according to the critics, by Ian and Oris Douglas Hamilton. And they fought the terrors of the jungles of East Africa to learn the facts of elephant life. And the least you can do is to buy their book after all that bad stuff, mosquito bites. Oh, terrible. So, uh, <laughs> oh, they did it for you, of course, just like McDonald's does it for you. 
does it all for you. So uh, you'll find this book lovely. It's called Among the Elephants, a book you will never forget. Truly, if you're an elephant freak, you certainly won't. Published by the Viking Press. Until now, you had to visit Europe to discover why European cruising sets the standard for the world. But now, that superb attention to elegance and passenger comfort is coming to the Caribbean. I'm George Fenton. Starting September 14th, Norwegian-America line Saga Fjord begins a unique series of one- and two-week cruises from Port Everglades, Florida. To Have you noticed that George is getting more elegant by the day? That gives you time to enjoy oh, more of the shipboard life you take a cruise of course, for George. and still take in all the sightseeing and <laughs> low-cost Caribbean shopping you wish. Most of all, you bask in service that is always attractive, never overbearing, the kind that Europeans take for granted. Sail on the Norwegian-registered Saga Fjord this fall and discover a new standard in Caribbean cruising. I'll bet George's Norwegian America line plays Florida. backgammon. They'll pay your one-way economy airfare or a fifty-dollar bonus like if you live in Florida. Player. Call your travel agent for a touch of yesterday. Probably a little game, Clifford. Uh, everything is going up. Speaking of uh, animal life, as long you know, getting into the elephant things, it's very exciting. People are really digging elephants and all. And uh, here's here's a here's a little a bit of news on the animal life. Uh, if you have giant roaches <laughs> in your house and other crawling insects, and you're having trouble because they keep coming back, you know, you get out the elephant gun and you keep shooting away and they keep roaring at you, hollering banzai. Uh, nevertheless, here's a new spray uh, for insect for insecticide-resistant crawling pests, like your uncle Carl. It's called Black Jack. It comes in a red and white aerosol can, and. Uh, by the way, a key line has just been inked out. That's interesting. They've changed the copy. Uh, <laughs> blackjack is periodically tested for effectiveness. And uh, Blackjack Total Release Indoor Fogger. So depend on Blackjack to keep your home and family safe from those rotten, crummy things that keep falling out from under the sink. All right. Blackjack. I don't know. What, we shouldn't put a cockroach commercial so close to George Plimpton. I mean, they just don't go together. Heavens. Uh, it's very bad programming. I, I you know, suspend. It also could be subtle satire, but uh, I don't like to think that I have a rotten mind, right? So uh, we'll have to straighten that. I, I have to go straight. I've, I've been threatening to go straight for years. And there's no nothing guaranteed more to make you go straight than a good dose of patriotism, right? And speaking of patriotic... Please play the general spot for us. This is our, our anthem here. We sing this every night, put our hand over our heart. Look up at the big flag with the big G there floating in the sky. Own. Yes, someday you'll own it. They don't someday own you. Someday you'll own, I say. Sooner or later, by George, you'll own generals for 60 years. Man and boy, General Tire has been one of the nation's leading tire manufacturers. But General Tire means more than tires. You better believe it. Uh, but nevertheless, their one-stop... That's metaphysical. Their one-stop car care centers are staffed by dynamic experts who know how to take care of your car. Whether it's wheel alignment, wheel balance, lube or oil change, mufflers, shock absorbers, brocades or batteries. All this stuff will be done down at your general tire dealer. So go down and see them. And see it out. You'll all general. Yes, sir. I say it again. Sooner or later, you'll own the generals. Yeah, boom, ba dum boom. Got to do something about that guy in the drum there. 
I hate guys that play patriotic music and sneer when they do it. Which high-potency vitamin do physicians and pharmacists recommend most? Well, you go to your local physician. Why don't you test this out? Go to your local pharmacist. You know, they make these great statements in this copy, and nobody ever tells you. You just go and say, hey, which vitamin do you recommend? Yeah, it beats me. Well, uh, I'd walk out by, George. Go back until you find a real pharmacist, and he will say, Aerogram M. That point, you know, you're dealing with a real pharmacist. So uh, <laughs> that's a squib makes this one, and uh, they say it's a real good one. So uh, you can buy 100. I have no way of uh, of uh, of interpreting the vitamin uh, craze. I've never been a vitamin cuckoo myself, although a friend of mine loves to take these uh, 100% potent with mineral vitamins. You know, he's got a drink he makes. He puts two of these things in a blender and two and a half ounces of vodka and a little grenadine. And uh, he, it's called a high-potency blaster, is what that drink is called, and it makes vitamins fun. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, some guys take 15, 20 vitamin pills in five minutes doing it this way. And uh, they find that it really makes a difference in their life. But uh, yes, it does. You know, it's not often that you get a chance to crawl down your driveway. But the offer is limited. See Theragran M or Theragran. Get get them at your pharmacist, and among other places, you can get them at Palma Pharmacist at one one fifty nine Seventh Avenue in picturesque Brooklyn. Picturesque comes in the non deposit bottle. Sooner or later, you own generals. Yes, sir. Now let's get the last one out of the way. Can the one of the founders of SDS, a leader of the peace movement, win the hearts and votes of George Wallace's constituency. Well, this is the newest issue that is being batted around in that dynamic periodical called The Village Voice. They really got the pulse of the nation going there. Hayden's populist themes appeal to Wallace supporters, but his entry, like, hey, let's blow up the damn post office! That's called a populist theme, friend. And, uh... <laughs> That's basically what it reads. Well, anyway, read the fascinating story of Tom Hayden's efforts to turn the radicalism of the 60s into the grassroots politics of the 70s. It's in this week's voice that your newsstand now makes dynamic reading. You put this under Fido, and he'll, he'll know that you're a man that has his finger on a pulse of something. But uh, nevertheless, uh, on the way to... Uh, on the way to prognosticating what the future is going to be like. Everybody, you know, uh, you don't mind if I continue this theme, do you? You don't mind. Well, has, has it ever occurred to you? Uh, see, th th I think the problem with prognosticating the theme of, of what it's going to be like is that any prognostication you make is often an extension of a secret desire. It has nothing to do with what's actually going to happen. In other words, if, if, if you're into technology, you really believe, ultimately, that the whole world is going to be unbelievably great because of technology. Now, the truth may be all around you. <laughs> you know, the, the obvious truth that this is not good, but you, you, you don't want it to be that way. So you predict by the 1960s, everything is going to get on the stick, you know, and it's going to really work, in spite of the fact that your Atwater can't just blow up and uh, blew the garage off and it set the neighborhood on fire. But by 1960, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so so you, you believe this. Now, on the other hand, there are the prognosticators who have the opposite, the opposite persuasion, who believe, 
See, for every prognosticator that predicts utopia, there is one who predicts hell. And it disappoints both when they arrive at the time that they've predicted that hell or utopia would arrive, and it does not show up. At which point they predict that it's only delayed. They say, well, you know, unforeseen events occurred. Now, if you were to ask those same guys that made all... And by the way, many of these guys that are, uh, that are in this book that I'm talking about are still around and occasionally pop up in learned journals, still saying the same sappy things, only in, a, you know, in, a, in another form. Uh, that's called the Buckminster Fuller Syndrome. Now, uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing, though, that, that is, is kind of sad about this is that very few people, and, and uh, in fact, uh, present speaker included, and I'd say all of us, almost without exception, because we all secretly believe in our own immortality. Secretly. Uh, <laughs> there's a bomb for you to deal with right out there at the old McDonald's while you're having your Big Mac tonight. But uh, we all secretly believe that just before our time comes, the theorem, the serum will have been discovered. They'll rush in and say, hold everything, hold, don't, hold it, here quick. I mean, inject it into you and you'll live forever then. But uh, this is a belief that is never spoken, but it's, it's always hanging around the back recesses of your mind. However, that makes it almost impossible for us to concede that one day, a thousand years actually will have passed from our time. We'll, we'll concede a thousand years used to pass. <laughs> we'll buy that. We'll buy the fact that, that uh, you know, thousands of years went on and the Egyptians rose and fell and rose and fell and dynasties came and went and the pyramids rose and fell into the sand. And uh, we'll concede that happened back in those days. But, of course, those were old days when they had things like a thousand-year time span. We don't have those things anymore. We only have last week's rock hits. So, uh, uh, see, that's, that's called a great time span in our time. Oh, yes, people get all... All puddly and watery. They say, "Oh, do you remember? It's hard to believe there were the 1950s. It's hard to believe. Would you believe it? In the 1950s, people were so innocent." By the way, this is part of the uh, the time syndrome. No matter what period in time uh, you live in, you firmly believe that the people of a preceding period were more innocent than your time. Of course, this is a form of self ego. It says, We're, you're smarter than anybody in the past. This is a commonly held belief, too. So, uh, uh, and yet it, it constantly confuses you when presented with the actual facts of the past. For example, the 1950s, the late 50s, saw the growth of some of the most cynical of all things in the entertainment world. Cynical of all time. The, more, the growth of the more it solves. Very cynical. If this was a you know, simple innocent time, why, why was he so big in the 50s? Uh, so, so it was not that innocent time which people see on television, you know, called the good old days. A bunch of guys saying, hey, how about a Coke, Chuck? Uh, oh, no. No, no, not at all. Things were going on that are never reported in those shows. In fact, the things that were going on had nothing to do with those shows. I, I don't recognize any of the, the truth of any of those so-called nostalgic shows. They don't look like the time they're supposed to be about. Uh, but uh, that's part of our myths, you see. That's all. The, the time mythology is fascinating with us. But nevertheless, uh, part of the problem of prognosticating the future is that you don't want to concede. Secretly, you don't want to admit there will be any time but ours. 
because you're really then conceding something deep about your mortality. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a secret fear. And, and to, to say, well, a thousand years, a thousand years. So all the things which are part of your life, which are, are, are really important, I mean, really, I mean, whatever woman you're involved with or man uh, or whatever, uh, <laughs> what, uh, the, the whole structure of your existence, your job, your work, your, what it is you're writing, you think you're writing this great book, let's say, by a thousand years, that stuff won't even be dust. The damn little dust lasts a thousand years, I can tell you that. <laughs> and so, so the the you, you don't want to concede this, see, because the the stuff with, with, in your life is so dynamically important now to concede that in a thousand years it just won't even. Not only will it not be unimportant, it won't be. That's the worst part of it, and that's in italics. <laughs> so it's hard for any of us to concede that there will be a radio station. A thousand years from now. And of course, if you're truly a, 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 a fool, you will believe that a thousand years from now, they will be playing records by the Beatles and the Stones. <laughs> but yeah, well, see, this is an attempt to say, well, see, we've arrived at the actual millennia, and, and, and this is the end. This is it, the end of all civilization. And a thousand years from now, of course, naturally, the, the, since this is the end of all civilization, it will continue this way. By the way, this is what Hitler thought. See, th this, was the, uh, this is one of the great ego, egotism problems that uh, nations and peoples and philosophies have to face, the belief that it is now forever because we've at last come to this really great... True, the truth. We've we've actually delved into it, and it's it's real now. So the the prognosticators are almost invariably wronger than the walking around guy. He doesn't say these things. So if you if you stop Archie Bunker on a street, and you say to Archie, Archie, what's it going to be like a thousand years from now? He says, I'll tell you what's going like. This whole damn place is going to be covered with graffiti. Well. <laughs> He's probably closer to the truth than Asimov ever would be, because he lives with the kind of stuff that the guy who is in his in his uh, study writing a novel or in his ivory tower writing this or he's he's uh, he's doing this uh, intellectual exercise he really runs into these things he, he simply doesn't. Uh, that's why often the man on the street can actually predict what's going to happen with much more accuracy in real things. For example. I can remember a guy saying to me, uh, this was uh, when I was, I was all involved in all kinds of, of uh, movements and one kind or another. And I remember standing in a street down in the village, and, uh, <laughs> and here I am, I'm Jules Pfeiffer and all these guys. It was the opening of some big love center or something down on. You remember when they used to have things like love centers? And, yeah, there was all this stuff. They were opening all that down, I say, and it had buttons that said love and, uh, and ban everything you know, except us and, and uh, get rid of the bad guys, hooray for the good guys. And, you know, everybody had buttons and stuff. And this guy's standing in a corner, and he's standing outside of his shop down there where they're opening up this love thing. See? And he's wearing an apron. He looks like the guy you see in the, in the, uh, the bacon shake commercial. You know, he's got an apron. I'd say, hey, I'll tell you how to bake them things. So he's standing out in front of the shop, and there's a whole bunch of people milling around on the street, you know, with Nat Hentoff is there with a beard flying, and everybody is making a scene big. And this guy is standing there, and he says to me, he says, hey, what's going on here, huh? I said, well, sir, it's, uh, you see, uh, 
uh, we have reached a point now of true sensi- sensitivity in, in man's progress, and, uh, and uh, we realize now that love is the answer to everything, that man needs more love, and, uh, and we're, we, we, are, we also desire to see the, uh, all of weapons of war done away with completely. That's what that dove up there means. And, uh, and you notice the song that uh, Jules Pfeiffer just wrote there that, uh, that Joni is singing over there. It's, uh, we're, we've reached the right thing. Thanks. You don't think that's going to work, do you? Why, sir, of course, it has to work. He said, how come we mean it has to work? I says, well, it has to work. There will be no future for mankind if it does not work. You know, these are the usual answers. He says, that may be, but it won't work. <laughs> I says, well, what do you mean it won't work? It has to work, sir. You know, that's the final put down. You use the word sir at the end. That means you are of the old, outdated generation, and uh, I am of the hip-with-it crowd, and... Uh, so naturally, I defer to your age, but not your wisdom, sir. So he says, uh, well, he says, if you live long enough on this street like I am, you know that this love is just a void, buddy. Bum, ba dum, bum. Well, <laughs> now here we are. You know, it's, it's some time later. Jules doesn't talk much about love anymore. And uh, we're off on another tangent. And all this great stuff, you see. Uh, he he really foretold it. <laughs> he really did. That 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 uh, he said it, and uh, he wasn't making a value judgment. He wasn't trying to say I'm for love or against love, which is what we often do. We get very mad when somebody says the truth because we think he's for this rotten stuff that he's predicting, or he's you know somehow he's he's behind it. And, you know, he just was simply saying it won't work. I'm using his phrase. It won't work. Well, it's true. So to predict the future is one of the most feckless of all activities and one of the saddest of all activities and one of the least productive and most futile of all activities and yet have you noticed the growth of the soothsayers in fact there was a there was a comment that was made by a historian many centuries ago who was talking about the decline of a neighboring kingdom and he said that their, be- their decline began to be marked by a sudden emergence of the superstitious, the soothsayers, the necromancers, the tea-leave readers, <laughs> and the sudden growth of the people's belief in these false idols. Well, so much for Uri Geller. And... Uh, and, uh, G- and 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 Gene Dixon and the whole lot, but uh, they're 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 among us today as they have never been among us, and it's a scary thing to me. To me, this is one of the most frightening of all developments is to see the growth of the soothsayers, and, uh, and so they recognized this two thousand years ago. They even recognized it as er- as late as the twenties. You know who used to write great stuff about this? Uh, Mencken. H.L. Mencken used to write uh, great essays about uh, people. He used to use, as a matter of fact, he used to use as, uh, as one of his really cutting remarks. He says, well, he's the sort of person who believes in astrologers, palmists, and uh, loud preachers of assorted denominations. <laughs> and, and we're certainly in that, in that bag deep, deep, and going deeper. But uh, 
I am making no negative prediction. Only reporting on what's happening. The negative predictions, because it isn't negative, actually. I mean, whoever said that the decline of the dinosaur was negative? It wasn't negative. It was inevitable. <laughs> so, you know... I mean, uh, I'm sure that there were a few walking around dinosaurs and says, you know, it's really getting kind of bad around here. I mean, you know, it's... Uh... <laughs> Others kept saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Why, it's better than it ever been. Well, you remember how it used to be so damn hot? I like these cool breezes. And uh, the sore-head dinosaur kept saying, yes, but have you noticed that that isn't just a cool breeze, a big white thing that's coming over the hill there? Looks suspiciously like a glacier. And... Uh, Somebody says, Glacier Schmacer. Well, we can learn to live with it. We've learned to live with everything else. Why, you remember the time the ticks came around and we had the trouble with the with the aphids and the beetles? He's Glacier isn't an aphid or a beetle, friend. And, of course, he was left out of the tribe and he went down to die by himself in a swamp. And uh, he's the one, by the way, that's now in the Museum of Natural History. All the others, by the way, were slowly pushed into the sea and we ain't found their bones yet. But uh, <laughs> you played for... <laughs> but do you notice none of them escaped? Even the one that sat around and yelled. <laughs> oh, I can sing it if I want. I'm doing this just to infuriate you. Okay. I got a blind. Uh, WOR New York, stay tuned for In Conversation.